Well, you guys can be seated. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Hey, will you guys give it up for our band and just thank them for leading us in worship this morning? awesome. I'm really excited about uh, the song they're going to sing today at the end of service. They, they did such a great job with it this morning, and we have a baptism at the end of service, so we're excited about that. But um, if you don't know much about me, or we've never discussed this, I've brought this up a few times in, in my life before, but a couple years ago, I, I got really interested in deconversion stories, I guess is what you would call it. I started looking at, I really wanted to understand like, why would anybody walk away from their faith? You know, and I wanted to try to understand it so I could help it. So I could talk to people who walk away from their faith. And so honestly, I started to study like atheism and look at, you know, books and podcasts and stuff written by atheists and try to understand their point of view and empathize. And I read a lot of books, um, actually of, of pastors who grew up in the church became pastors and then walked away from their faith, became atheists and um, really kind of carried that banner. And so I, I started looking at all these different stories and really interesting stuff. But here's what I found. It, it, it's not, it's, it, it's much more of a, a gradual thing than you would think. But every, in every single story, there's always this event and it's an event that triggers disinterest in God. Something happens and it's tragic it's painful, it feels spontaneous, but it's very dynamic. And because of that event, it just it triggers this, this spiral that begins. Um, and it can many times be in disinterest in God. But here's what's fascinating about this. Is in the same way that an event can trigger disinterest in God, if you start to read conversion stories, stories of people who did decide to follow Jesus or got faith for the first time or went from being an atheist to being a, a, a Christian, you'll see the same thing. You'll see an event that triggers interest in God. So two different groups, two different things going on. One experiences an event and finds God. One experiences an event and loses God. But they're all asking the same question in the middle of it. And that's this question here. Where is God? Where is God in the midst of what I'm feeling and in the midst of what I'm going through? Where is God? And we all know the time old question. I mean, you've probably even asked this yourself. It would be smart to if you haven't. But we've all heard this before. If God is good, why is there so much injustice and suffering in the world? You ever asked yourself that question? You ever fought with that question? If God is so good, then why is there so much injustice and suffering in the world? And a lot of people will use this to, as proof, I guess you could say, as proof that there is no God, as proof that God doesn't exist. How could a good and loving God exist when, look at what's going on in the world. And they'll point to all kinds of stuff. They'll, they'll point to people who are battling cancer. They'll point to this thing going on in Malaysia. They'll point to starving kids in Africa. I mean, right now you, you point to what's going on in Israel and in Pakistan right now. And you could go, man, look at that. If God is so good, then why, why would a good, loving God ever allow something like this to happen because look at those people, look what they're going through, look at how they're suffering. But here's what's really, really interesting about this. A lot of atheists and a lot of people who are trying to discredit God, many times what happens is, is those who leverage injustice and suffering as an argument against the existence of God, usually leverage injustice and suffering experienced by other people, not their own. So they'll point to those people over there and they'll be like, look at those people. Look at what they're going through. Look at, look at what they're experiencing. You can't tell me that there is a good and loving God because look at what they're going through. But here's the interesting thing is if you went and talked to those people who are going through the injustice that you're pointing at, many times what those people would tell you is that it's their faith that's getting them through the injustice and the suffering that they're experiencing. So here's the thing. It's disingenuous to leverage the suffering of people who believe in God as evidence that there is no God. To point to people who are relying on God, who are leaning on God, who would tell you, it's my faith that is getting me through this tragic thing that I'm being through. It's disingenuous to come to a conclusion about God that people who believe in God have not concluded. <laughs> now, that may not be your situation. 
Because for you, you may be sitting there and going, oh, no, 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 pastor. I'm not pointing at anybody's pain and suffering. I have my own pain and suffering. I'm not pointing at what anybody else has experienced. I have my own experiences. And if that's you, I completely understand. I would never judge you or I would never say anything bad about that. Because probably if I went through what you've been through, I might, I might come to the same conclusion as you. So, but here's the thing that you know and I know too. If, you're go- if you've gone through your own pain and suffering, your own trials and tribulations and stuff, and that's what's made you lose faith in God... At the same time, somewhere in the world, somewhere in time and space, there has been somebody else who has been through what you've been through or worse. And they were able to maintain their faith or actually it's their faith that got them through it. So here's the question. When you look at these two dynamics that are, you know, very, very polarizing. The question is this. What makes the difference? What makes the difference between the person who can go through a pivotal circumstance and they lose their faith and a person who can go through a pivotal circumstance and find their faith, maintain their faith, or even grow up and blow up their faith? If you're just joining us, we are in the, at the tail end of a series. We've been in a series the last six weeks. And if anything I say interests you or you're like, mm, I'm, I'd like to listen to that. All of our, our sermons are on YouTube, uh, Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of that stuff. But what we've been talking about is that when you look through the New Testament scriptures, there's two things that amazed Jesus, that made Jesus' jaw drop. And it was people of great faith and people of lack of faith. But it always had to do with faith, which makes sense because Jesus's initial invitation to his disciples was this. Follow me. Follow me. Before they believed in anything, while Matthew still sat at the tax collector's booth, Jesus's invitation was not to believe in anything just yet, although there would be plenty of things to believe about him. But his initial invitation was to follow me, step out in faith and follow me, do as I do and do as I teach. And let me give you the practical illustrations and practical steps you need to take in order to experience God's faithfulness on the other side of your life. And so his hope for us is that our lives, our faith would be lived out in the context of our lives. And again and again and again, they had opportunities to do this. But then eventually what would happen is that the church would reduce this or water this back down to just believe. Well, all you need to do is believe in Jesus. Because you can grow up and blow up some very big, sexy churches with just believe in me. Because any of us can believe something. That really doesn't make a difference maker. That's not that hard to do. I can raise my hand and say I believe just about anything. And so after some time, we've, we've seen that, you know, this, this has kind of shaped uh, not just the American church, but the, but the church as a whole. But what we've learned in this series is that what, what God is most honored by, God is most honored by our living active, death-defying, in spite of faith. And so how do we, we've been trying to figure out, how do we grow up and blow up our faith? Or another way to put it is what fuels or facilitates the development of an enduring faith? If I, if I want to grow my faith, if I want to get my faith back, what is it that fuels or facilitates the development of that faith? And so over the last couple of weeks, we've taken one thing each week. And so we talked about this. We talked about practical teaching. If you talk to somebody whose faith is inspiring, they'll tell you, man, there was a teacher, there was a preacher, there was somebody who just made it seem so practical. It's like they gave me handlebars. And all of a sudden, this text that's 2,000 years old, I knew how to apply it to my life. And it just kind of came alive, and it's like for the first time I knew what I was not supposed to just believe. I knew what I was actually supposed to do. And then we talked about personal ministry. We talked about how each of us at some point in our faith journey are going to feel a nudge by God. Where God's going to say, hey, I want you to do that. I want you to take care of that. I want you to help that person. I want you to go say something to them. I want you to be the answer to that question. And we go, "Uh, God, uh, it must have been a wrong number or something. Uh, I'm not that guy. I'm not that girl. I don't have the resources. I, I don't have the ability. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, well, just bring me what you got. Bring me your lunchbox. 
which is so funny. I told, I told last service, I have so many text messages because, you know, we're creating like a common language here, you know. I have so many text messages of people telling me a story. And at the end of it, they go, well, I'm just bringing God my lunchbox, Pastor. And so if somebody like random finds my phone, they'll be like, why are all these people bringing this guy God's lunchbox? I don't understand this lunchbox talk that's in his phone. It's the weirdest thing ever. But, but that's what we're supposed to do. Well, God, here's what I got. And in the midst of that, that's where God blows up and grows up our faith and does things that we never thought possible. And then providential relationship. God has intersected his life with ours. But also what happens is that God takes our life and intersects it with other people. God brings people into our life. Sometimes it feels like just the right time. And we never know what hangs in the balance, you know? I mean, I was just telling somebody the other day. I mean, you guys just saw CJ leading worship up here. CJ, CJ and I met each other in high school, in theater class. Now you know why we're so weird, okay? Like... <laughs> We met each other in theater class and then we just like started to get to know each other and we'd see each other in the weight room and stuff. And now, you know, here we are, golly, way too many years later. Um, it's my birthday tomorrow. And for the first time on a survey, I'm 36 tomorrow. On the first time of a survey, I had to mark 36 to 45. My heart drops for a sec, you know? You know, I was like, oh, geez, you know, but I mean, CJ and I, we met each other. I was 15 years old when I met CJ and here we are. I never would have thought when you go back to when I was 15, if I went and, you know, tapped my, my younger self, I was like that guy, you and him, you're going to be doing great work together. You're going to be doing God's work together. He'll be the singing. You'll be the, you know, you'll be the speaking and, you know, have this beautiful relationship. We have a beautiful relationship, right? I mean, you look like Rip from Yellowstone. I wear small t-shirts, you know, I mean, it's a beautiful relationship, you know, but well, our lives will intersect. God does that all the time. God does that all the time in your life and mine. And then the other thing is private disciplines. We talked about how anybody of great faith will tell you that they have great private spiritual disciplines. And I gave you a 30 day challenge. To do what so many people of great faith have done. To give God the first minutes of your day. To give God the first dollars of, of, of your paycheck. And to give God your first day of your week. Which look at you. You're all here. The room is full. Last service was full. So you all must be doing this just to the T. That's perfect. So, But today the last thing we're going to talk about is pivotal circumstances. And I told you at the beginning of the series, these are not five things you can do. Some of them you can do, but they're really dynamics because many times they're things that you just walk into. And pivotal circumstances are just that. They are times that we don't choose. We just walk into them. They just happen. And every time they're disruptive, they're catalytic, and they're defining. Now, there can I know immediately our mind we go to we go to you know, negative pivotal circumstances. But honestly, too, there are positive uh, pivotal circumstances as well. There are things that are positive that happen in your life that are defining, catalytic, and although disruptive, they can also that you could be things that you become actually thankful for. You know, like you know, graduating or, or getting to go to college or meeting somebody, getting married, um, you know, or having a kid. You know, uh, my daughter is, is is in service, and I and I tell you what, man, why are you in service? You're going to screw me up. Um, <laughs> there is something about being a parent. Where you meet your child for the first time. I mean, when you go through everything you go through and they hand you your child. Uh, we, 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 I was at a, 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 man, a male, man baby shower last night. Uh, it's a baby shower for males. And we were telling stories and stuff at Mod Pizza and sharing experiences and stuff. And, you know, we were talking about this. Like, man, when they hand you this baby that, you know, can't even talk yet. And then when they start talking, you go, God, take that away. Uh, but... They can't even talk yet. They can't even do anything. They can't do anything for you. But they hand you that baby. And I tell you what, it's like somebody steals your heart. It's like you look at that child when they're in your arms for your first time. And you're like, oh my gosh, I would kill anyone for you. I mean, I would die for you. That's what I meant to say. Uh, I would die for, I would die for you. Because I, you just follow. And I'm telling you what, something I've realized as a parent and as a follower of Jesus, when somebody, when you start to understand that that little thing you feel, that little glimpse of love that you feel in that moment, that's just a preview. That's just a smidge of how much your Father in Heaven loves you. If you could connect that feeling from your head to your heart, 
And understand that that's exactly how God feels about you. That it's not about what you've done. It's not about where you've been. And it's nothing you have to earn. But your Father in Heaven loves you in that same way. Game changer. Game changer for your faith. But the truth is, we, we, most of us know pivotal circumstances as a negative experience, as a painful experience, as a tragic experience. But here's what I want you to understand today, is that as we go through those tragic, painful, pivotal circumstances, they can be used to grow up and blow up our faith. C.S. Lewis, who, if you don't know anything about C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia might ring a bell. He wrote that book, but he, he was an atheist. He didn't believe in God, but he actually talked himself into becoming a follower of Jesus because he said the evidence, like just like that song we sang, the, the evidence is just, it's there. I mean, how could you not? And he wrote a lot of different theological books. One book that he read is called The Problem of Pain. And this is what he says in that book. He says, God whispers to us, in our pleasures, and speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And isn't that true? Isn't it true that positive experiences bring about certain feelings and motions and questions and conversations in us? But the truth is, is that painful experiences really can sometimes get us to look up when we've been looking down. Many times painful experiences can get us to ask questions that we hadn't been asking. You know, the pandemic is a great example of this. During the pandemic, there's, there's been so much conversation now about mental health. So much conversation about mental health that, that we honestly, I, I don't remember having as a kid. It was, it was kind of a taboo thing. But the pandemic, as terrible as it was, it, 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 it roused everyone and it got us talking about mental health and isolation and anxiety. And it's, it's been amazing as a church to begin to talk about that and to see so many people not just find spiritual health, but, but, but mental health as well. You take what's going on in Israel right now. It doesn't matter where you land on the issue or, or anything like that, but you take what's going on right now in Israel and Palestine, Palestine and it's, it's getting us to ask questions about what's humane, what's right, what's wrong. And, and, and that's what pain does. Pain can sometimes bring something out in us to ask questions and have conversations and look up at a God that, honestly, we just we weren't doing. And you know how this works. You all, you all can testify to this. All of us, we're fine without God until we're not fine. How many of us are guilty of that? How many of us are guilty to not needing, not needing Christianity, not needing God, not needing any sort of outside help or, or deity or anything spiritual until, well, stuff happens in our life? And then all of a sudden, then we, we, we start looking for answers. Then all of a sudden we look up and we start to ask questions about the universe and existence and purpose. See, the thing is, is nobody, nobody wants to go through this stuff. The thing is, is that many times it really can be catalytic to our life. And it can possibly be a defining moment. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you, you're, you may be in this room and you may be on the fence or you may be an atheist, which believe it or not, we've, for, for years we've had several atheists uh, who have attended our church I guess you could say religiously, uh, followed our church and, and they're here every single week. And I have no clue why they, why they keep coming back, but there's just something that keeps drawing them back. See, now you're all going to look around the room, but which one of you anyway, but it's, it's amazing. So I know, I know some of you, you may be sitting there and you may be wrestling with that question. How could a good God allow so much injustice and stuff in in, in the world? And you might be thinking to yourself, you know what? You're not going to get me. I've seen this sermon before. I've seen somebody do this sermon before. You're going to try to put a spin on it. Like, you know, well, the way that there can be a good, loving God and injustice in the world is, well, it's not God. It's this or it's that. You're going to put a spin on it. You're going to try to make God look good, you know? And here's the thing. No, I'm not. I'm not going to put a spin on it. I'm not going to do the thing that you think I'm going to do or the thing that you've seen before. Actually, I'm in the same boat as you. I would agree with you. God allows so much injustice and suffering to happen in this world. It's incredible. It's crazy. And I ask myself all the time, why doesn't God step in and stop it or do something about it? Why is that God answers some people's prayers and other people never see an answer to the prayers? But what I would tell you is I still believe that God is a good God. And I still believe that God is love. 
And you would ask me, how in the world could you say that? How in the world could you think that? And I would tell you because the New Testament authors who were with Jesus, who lived with Jesus, who literally looked him in the eyes, they, here's the thing, when you look at them, they saw no conflict between a good loving God and pain and suffering in the world. You do your homework, you do your history, you look at the people of the New Testament, Matthew, James, John, Paul, you look at all these people who, who basically wrote these letters that told us that God is good, that God is love, that, that, that God promises all these things to us. You look at them and guess what? Most of them ended up dying. Most of them went through trials and tribulations that you and I will never go through. They went through pivotal circumstances. They suffered in this world and went through incredible injustices. Yet, they always kept their faith. Yet, they relied on their faith and they leaned on God. You take John, for example, right? You go through your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Here you have a gospel written by this guy named John. If you don't know anything about John, he was an apostle and he, he wrote his letter way later at the end of his life, probably between the ages of like 80 and 90. And so he's an old man and he sits down and he knows that there's been some, you know, documents made that, you know, tell the life of Jesus. But he's like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take my swing at it. I'm going to tell it the way I've had, because I've had a lot of time to think about this. And so at the very beginning of his letter, in the first chapter of John, he writes, God is love. And again, if you were John's friend, you saw him write that, you'd be like, you sure about that? You sure God is love? You sure that's what you want to say? Are you sure you believe that? Because I don't know if you know this or not. You are in this gang of 12 guys and uh, 11 of them are dead and you're the only one left. And they were, they were stoned to death. They were beheaded. They were hung upside down on a cross. I mean, even your friends beyond that. I mean, Paul's dead. All these women, I mean, they're, they're all dead. Uh, John, are you sure? And John would say, I don't, I don't see the connection here. What are you talking about? God is love. God is, God is good. And they'd say, yeah, but look at the world and look what's happened in your life. And he would say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. The, the goodness of God is not found in the world. The goodness of God is found in Jesus. The goodness and love of God is not found in circumstances. It, it's found in the person. So you're looking at it the wrong way. Or you take James, the brother of Jesus. If you don't know anything about James, James was not a believer. At one point in time in the New Testament, James actually shows up with his mama and tells Jesus, get in the car. You're creeping everybody out talking about how you're God on earth and you're a crazy person. Get in the car. Stop talking about that. I've seen you grow up and we grew up in the same home. And I'm telling you, you are not God in any way, shape or form, buddy. But you know what? After he sees his brother die on the cross and then three days later, he hears and sees his brother alive again. He goes, never mind, you're God. All right. And he changes his tune. He becomes a follower of his brother. Think about that. Those of you who have siblings, how, how much faith would you have to have to follow your sibling and be like, you are the Messiah. You are the savior of the earth. Many siblings are turning to each other, but don't get your hopes up. All right. But that's what James does. He goes, yes, he is the Messiah. Now, what happened to James is he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which you hear Jerusalem and you thought, oh, I've heard the name Jerusalem. What an honor that must have been. Not the case, because the church in Jerusalem was at the epicenter of the Judeo-Christian Old Testament way. And so they were actually ostracized kicked out. They were cut off from the temple. They said, you guys cannot visit the temple. You cannot get the resources that the temple provides and you are not one of us anymore. And so they were completely cut off. So James was basically preaching and leading this church that were in, in the poorest in, uh, of, of situations that they possibly could be in. The only way they survived is as Paul traveled around the Mediter Mediterranean and planted churches, he would have those churches send resources and funds back to Jerusalem to help James and his people out. And so James, he sits down and he writes this letter because everybody's going through some really hard stuff. I mean, you know, there's people are being martyred. Christians are being hunted. There's no resources. They've been cut off from the temple and all the resources of, you know, the Pharisees and all that stuff. And so he sits down and he writes a letter and he's basically what the, the, the sum of James's message is. James says this, Hey, trials are tests. Trials are tests. And he said, Hey, take heart, have hope, keep your head up, dude. 
He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. What? He's basically saying, hey, you know what? Everything we're going through right now, me included, this is just a test. This is a test of our faith. And you know what? It's actually a great opportunity. Keep your head up. Be excited. Because what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And if we can make it through this, this is going to test the genuineness of our faith. And if we hold on, not only will our faith grow up and blow up, but it will actually produce resilience and perseverance in us. So keep doing what you're doing. And you know what happened after he wrote that letter? He got killed too. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? So, I mean, you take what he says and you go, man, do you think he really believed that even after he was dead? I think so. John thought so. Because here's the thing. You know this. Wrinkle-free days do not create great faith. Wrinkle-free days don't create great faith. Those times when everything's going good, when everything's going great, it's so easy in worship and stuff to raise your hand and say that God is good. But you also know, too, that those wrinkle-free days, you don't really need to feel like you need to pray. You don't feel like you need to gather with other believers. You, you don't feel like you need to, to spend time with God or anything like that. And here's the thing. When we go through pivotal circumstances, what we learn is this. We don't know what we really truly believe until what we claim to believe is tested. I, I, I can testify to this as somebody who grew up in the church. I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up in the church and I heard all the sermons. I heard all the stories. I heard all the promises of God. And we can all look at the, listen to the stories and stuff and go, mm-hmm, oh, that's good. I like that. Uh-huh, I'm going to believe that. But you don't know what you really believe until what you claim to believe is actually tested. Kind of a trendy word in our generation today, deconstructing your faith. Find it on TikTok all the time. TikTok has learned I'm very interested in Christians who are deconstructing their faith. So I have videos all the time that come up, and it's usually millennials. Millennials who grew up in the church, grew up Catholic, grew up Lutheran, grew up in a conservative home, and they believed what they believed. And then they got to be a young adult, or they got to be a a family man, or they had kids or something, and then stuff started happening in their life, and everything that they believe suddenly started to be tested. All of a sudden, the genuineness of their faith was, was being put through the ringer. And they began to kind of deconstruct what they had been told, what they had learned, what their parents taught them, what their pastor taught them. And I don't think it's a bad thing. A lot of pastors flip out about it. What's going on with this generation? They're deconstructing their faith. Yeah, you know what they're doing? They're refining it. They're deconstructing it, and that's great. What's important is once you deconstruct it, to build it back. But you know this. A faith that has been tested is a faith that can actually be trusted. Because we all remember those times, if you grew up in church or whatever, you ever remember those times in high school where people started to quiz you? Quiz you on your faith? Quiz you on your theology? And sometimes we'd freak out. I don't know the answer. (laughs) Yeah, you don't know the answer because you've never spent the time actually deconstructing it and finding it out for yourself. Because your faith was your mommy and your daddy's and you just took everything the pastor said at his word and you never tested it. You never actually have had to live it out. A faith that has been tested is a faith that can actually be trusted. And so sometimes when we go through pivotal circumstances, it's a good thing. It's a great opportunity for our faith to be refined for, for us to test the genuineness of our faith. Jesus used this all the time. Jesus took these opportunities that again, he didn't always orchestrate. Some of them he orchestrated, but others of them, it's just, it was what was happening or it was what was going to happen. And so he's like, all right, great, great opportunity for a faith test. So like, let's for, let's for instance, talk about Peter and he took Peter and he knew what was about to happen when he was going to be arrested and, and all this stuff. And so he takes Peter and he goes, Hey Peter, uh, just so you know, I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be put to death three days later though. I'm going to rise again. It's going to be all good. Uh, but, um, I'm worried about you a little bit. Um, you know, you're, you're kind of a hothead fisherman. You know what I mean? You're, you're a man's man. You're about 24 years old. you but you know, I just want you to know. I'm I'm praying for you. This is actually what he says to him. He says, I've prayed for you, Simon, Peter, that your faith may not fail. He's saying, hey, buddy, this is going to be a real faith test. And I am am so praying for you that you don't screw this up. (laughs) And you know what Peter says? 
Peter, man, he overpromised so many times. He thought he was so big and bad, you know. He was probably one of those guys that, like, watched WWE every week, you know what I mean? And he thought he was a professional wrestler, even though he had never been a professional wrestler. You know what I mean? Like, I almost named a name. I was going to embarrass somebody, but I, Jesus spoke to me and said, don't do that. But <laughs> Peter, said, Peter said this back to him. He goes, Lord, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and even to death. I mean, that's such a cool, brave heart thing to say. You know what I mean? I am ready to go with you to prison or even to death. And Jesus is like, we'll see. <laughs> and you all know what happened. You've probably heard the story before. What happened? Jesus was arrested. Peter takes out a sword. He had one moment and he cut a guy's ear off. And Jesus was like, you dingling. And then he put the ear back on and Peter just dropped the sword and ran. You know what I mean? And took off. And then Peter disappears. Peter takes off and disappears. And then Jesus is on trial. And outside of the trial, Peter's out there. And somebody walks to him and goes, hey, you're Peter, right? You're Jesus' Peter. And he goes, no, I'm not. No, I don't know that guy. And then another guy, don't you know? And he denies Jesus three times. And then even at the cross, even as his savior and his best friend is on the cross dying, Peter is in the back hiding his face, embarrassed to even be known or associated with Jesus. And then he runs and he hides and he takes his ball And he goes home, and even though Jesus gave him the spoiler alert of the century, he still didn't believe. And then, Jesus, all of a sudden, shows up. and was like, ta-da, I told you guys, I don't know why you thought this. And Peter's like, oh yeah, I knew it was going to be okay. I mean, he's such a pansy. That's what he should have been called. Pansy Peter should have been his name, okay? So Pansy Peter's like, oh yeah, I knew it was all going to be okay. You know, and he's back with Jesus and everything. And again, Jesus is like, well, we'll see Peter. And so Jesus goes, hey, Peter, here's the keys to the car. I'm going off into heaven. Go and make disciples of all nations. And so literally Jesus ascends into heaven. Peter, again, his track record no victories, okay? He's at a losing, losing record. And he, Jesus gives him the keys to the car. And what do you think Peter is going to do next? Most of us would go, oh my goodness, don't give him the keys to the car. He's going to wreck it. He's not, he's not fit for this. He doesn't have the trek record. He always screws this up. His name is Pansy Peter. That's what we've been calling him. PP for short. Don't give the keys to PP. I see, I can make the Bible so fun, guys. This is why you need to come to Anchored Hope Church. Don't give the keys to PP. He's not going to be able to do this. But here's what happens. A few weeks later, John and Peter are going by the temple, and there's a man who hasn't been able to walk his entire life. He's about 40 years old is what the scripture tells us. He's about 40 years old and everybody knows this guy because the only reason he's alive is because people who pass him, give him food, give him resources, give him blankets, make sure he's cleaned and he's not sick and stuff. So everybody knows this guy. And so Peter sees him and Peter feels the nudge. He puts his hands on him and he prays for his healing. And all of a sudden the guy can walk. It's amazing. Word travels everywhere. And so guess what happens? The Pharisees hear it. The same Pharisees that put Jesus to death. They, they hear about it and they arrest Peter and John. And they put them in a prison. And then the next day they put them on trial. And here's the big question, okay? The Pharisees, they're dealing with a very uh, sensitive political situation. They killed this guy who was leading this cult. His name was Jesus. And then they find out that the guy they killed somehow escaped his grave. And not only escaped his grave, but he's alive and he's been seen in the city. Again, ghost stories, everybody's freaking out. And so they're like, we got to deal with this because people are starting to follow this guy. Because I don't know if you know this or not. If there's ever a guy you find out you can't kill, you become very terrified of him. So you either follow him or you are afraid. And that's what they were. They were afraid. So they put them on trial. And this is what they said. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them by what power or what name did you do this? And here was the trivia question. Okay. They're saying, look, he who should not be named should not be the person in which you name. Okay. So we're going to give you a chance. This is going to save your life. So we're going to ask you very, very carefully. We're going to ask you by whose name you healed this person. 
please don't say he who should not be named because we are terrified of him. And if you do that, if you put us in that predicament, off with your head. So literally, Pansy Peter's life is on the line. And we all know what Pansy Peter, PP for short, does when his life is on the line, right? So what do you think he did? Well, he might have surprised you. Because this is what he does. He stands up and he goes, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. I mean, Pansy Peter just stands up and goes completely stone cold Steve Austin on these fools. And he was like, then know this. And he's like, Jesus Christ, I'll even name who he's from. The guy that you tried to kill. Guess what? He's alive and everybody better known it. Yeet. I mean, it was amazing, right? And like John's just sitting next to him going, oh, you know, like I'm with you, dog. You know what I mean? And they're laying down this promo, this smackdown on these Pharisees. And they're so amazed. They're so caught off. They're like, where'd Pansy Peter go? Now we got this guy going to town on us and everybody is outside listening to this. And it's just about to be like WrestleMania. You know what I mean? All of a sudden in this place. And so you know what they decide to do? They decide to quietly let them go. This is what it says. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and yeeting ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Just so you know context, at the men's baby shower last night, Adam dared me if I could fit yeet in my sermon, and I just won five bucks. Anyway. (laughs) Love guys' baby showers. But... (laughs) Here's what happened, all right? Here's what happened in the midst of all this and what they experienced is that tested faith is where you discover if you have real faith. And what happened is these ordinary men whose faith had been tested, guess what? They went outside the city walls and met together with the other Christians and they decided we got to have a prayer meeting. That was terrifying. That was scary. We were almost... We were almost dead. And they had a prayer meeting and they got together. And do you know what they prayed for? I know what I would have prayed for. I would have been like, thank you, Jesus. We made it out alive. We are not going back to that place ever again. But they prayed for one word. The scripture tells us that the thing that they prayed for was boldness. Can you believe that? They said, Father God, that was awesome. That was incredible. You grew up and blew up our faith. Did you see Peter Pansy turn into Stone Cold Steve Austin? I mean, that was incredible. Where did that come from? Oh my goodness. God, give us more opportunities to be bold. Because they saw that trials tested their faith. And when their faith was tested, it grew up and blew up their faith. What's the difference maker? It's pivotal circumstances. Pivotal circumstances have the potential to grow up and blow up your faith. But what's the difference between somebody losing their faith and finding their faith? There's three things real quick I want to give you. The the difference maker of somebody finding their faith and losing their faith is number one, what we believe. Here's the thing I found to be true across the board in all of these different deconversion stories is that many times the person who loses their faith, the reason that they lost their faith is because they had an inaccurate theology to begin with. They had a flawed belief system and it was no fault of their own. It was either a failed failed, uh, belief system given to them by their parents, given to them by their pastor, given to them by a bad church. But many times what we see is people, they don't even believe the accurate things about God. Or here's, the th- here's another way to put it. They assume what's not true or they claim what's not promised. They assume what's not true or they claim what's not promised. How many times do we assume something about God that's not even true about God? I mean, I've debunked this one so many times, but everything happens for a reason, right? And many times you've heard people say, well, everything happens for a reason. Let me tell you something. That is so theologically inaccurate. God doesn't use bad things to make, to make his way. He doesn't use evil. Okay. 
But we assume things that aren't even true about God. I mean, sometimes, honestly, I cringe sometimes watching clips of pastors and stuff because they make these big, bold statements, you know? Another one I've heard is, God will never give you more than you can handle. You ever heard that one before? God will never give you more than you can handle. That's my best Joel Olstein, right? God will never give you more than you can handle. And everybody goes, oh, that's beautiful. I don't know about you. I've been given a lot more than I can handle. Like at a frequent rate, okay? At a frequent rate, I'm giving way more than I can handle. That's just not true. And it's just not scripturally true. There's nothing that Jesus said that points to that God will never give you more than you can handle. As a matter of fact, one of the verses we're about to read tells you the exact opposite of that. Or we claim what's not promised. We go back into the Old Testament and we take these promises of God that were given to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And we go, yep, I'm going to claim that for myself. And then you claim that for yourself or you go to Hobby Lobby and you find a big old plaque with it on there. Like Jeremiah 29, 11, and You're like, for God, for God has these plans for you, plans to prosper you and all this stuff. And you're like, that's beautiful. I'm going to put that over the toilet. So every time I go take a, I'm going to know that God has plans for my life. But then if you actually read the verses after that, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope in a future. However, for the next 70 years, you're all in exile and you won't see the promises of God. Your grandchildren will see the promises of God. And you go, Oh, thank you. But how many of us we've claimed the promises of God. We've claimed scripture from the old Testament that was meant for somebody else for a a certain particular people. And we try to apply it to our lives. And then at the end of it, here we are, we're not Jewish and we still aren't, we don't have any other land, right? But if you look at the new Testament, You see these promises of Jesus and they all wind up dead. So here's the thing. Same God, different promises, different covenant, totally separate context. You can't claim what's not promised to you. And then the other thing is this, who you listen to. The difference maker is also who you listen to. I tell you what, it breaks my heart. I have sat with so many people going through pivotal circumstances. And the hardest thing in the world, if I had to stand up in front of a group of young students and they were like, tell us, what does a pastor do? I would say, well, here's what I do. I have to uncross wires that other people crossed in other people's life. Because so many times I'll sit with somebody through a pivotal circumstance and the reason they're struggling is because they got terrible, terrible advice from somebody else. I'll give you a great example, and I'm sorry if this is sensitive or if this triggers you in any way, but I've sat with parents who have lost a child. I've sat with parents who have lost a child. My grandmother lost a child, put my uncle, put my uncle to rest way earlier than she ever should. She should never have to go up to that, go through that. And I literally remember people walking up to her, and I've seen so many people do this, where they walked up to her and say, oh, don't worry, Jesus just needed another angel in heaven. Ugh. Or it was just his time. Or everything happens for a reason. And don't tell anybody this, but I want to walk up to that person and punch them in the face. Because it's the most insensitive, inaccurate, unsympathetic thing that you could say to somebody who's going through that. I've walked with people through sexual trauma and divorces and all kinds of stuff. And people say the craziest thing trying to make sense of it all. And here's the thing. Some of it you just can't make sense of. And you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. Because here's the thing. Not all that's said should find a home in your head. Not all that's said should find a home in your head. And even though they may be a terrific friend and you might lean on them for all kinds of things, man, sometimes people say the stupidest stuff. And there's some people you should just not listen to. The last thing is this, how we frame it. The difference maker between losing your faith and maintaining your faith or growing your faith is how you frame it. There's a story where the disciples and Jesus, they go by a man who's paralyzed and they stop and they go, Hey, Jesus, uh, trivia question. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Because they believed in this kind of like spiritual karma. Like the reason that man can't walk is because of sin in his life or because of his parents. Somebody's at fault. 
But they believed in this spiritual karma that if you do bad things, God smites you. God gets angry at you. God throws down, you know, curses. You ever believe that for yourself? Maybe you have. And Jesus turns to these guys and he goes, dinglings, neither this man nor his parents have sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He says, guys, nobody's at fault here. It's not his parents. It's not him. That's not the way my God works. I'm here to tell you how my God works. God didn't do that. But I will tell you this, that in this man's life, God can work and he heals the man. And that's the thing. When you go through stuff, you got to be careful. You got to, you got to think what you actually believe because what you believe is about to be tested. But the other thing is you got to be very, very careful who you talk to and who you lean on for advice because it's important because it frames the situation. And here's the thing. The same rain can drown or bless. It's how you frame it in the mess. It's all about how you look at it. But here is a promise of Jesus that you can actually bank on. That debunks everything happens for a reason. Jesus sits his disciples down and he goes, I've told you all these things. Which the things he just told them were about how they were probably going to die and he was definitely going to die. He's like, why did I give you the spoiler alert? Why did I tell you about all this? I told you these things so you can have peace. Uh, I don't feel like I'm having much peace right now. This is terrible information. Yeah, but here's the thing. I'm letting you know, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will go through pivotal circumstances. Things that are no fault of yours. Things that you will never be able to choose. And each of our stories will look a little bit different. But take heart. Take heart. Have peace. Because guess what? I've overcome the world and I can help you overcome anything you go through. We have a very, very special baptism this morning. And I had the privilege of filming a little bit of her story. And so I want you to watch, watch this video real quick. Hi, my name is Brooke, and I am 15 years old. I have been going to Anchored Hope Church for a few months now, and I want to be baptized because I heard Michael talk about how if you give God the little you have and put all your faith into Him, He'll make something so much bigger. I struggle a lot with my mental health. I went through a lot of trauma, um, and my life wasn't that easy. I had seizures from stress and trauma growing up and my parents are separated which was a big part of it. Um, a few months ago I moved in with my uncle and aunt, um, Ashley and Brad, and they helped me a lot to work on my mental health by taking me to church and it has brought out a new side of me. I can tell that I'm happier and the stuff from the past doesn't really affect me anymore. And I'm really thankful that they are a big part of my life now and helped me get out of the situations I were in before. If someone else is going through something hard right now, I would tell them that they're not alone and that even though they can't see him, that God is always here to help guide you through your toughest battles and that you might feel alone, but there's always someone to help you get up and get out and do better and just start to be yourself again. Was that good, guys? Perfect, Jay. Perfect. It's, it's very good. It's a total God thing that on our last day of this series, we get to celebrate somebody who's been through a pivotal circumstance. Brad and Ashley and Brooke and their family... They're a living embodiment of this entire series. Because Brooke's story is full of pivotal circumstances. And then here were her aunt and uncle who felt the nudge to step in and to help.
and to do what they could. And it probably seemed like way more than they could handle. But what they do? They brought their lunchbox. They gave God what they could. And they said, oh, well, God, this is what we can do with it. I guess the rest is up to you. And I remember when Ashley put on our subdivision Facebook group page, hey, my niece is coming to move in with us. If anybody knows any other kids or has anything or blah, 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 blah. And again, what have I taught you? To invite people to come and sit with you. When? When they're not going to church. When they're going through something they're not prepared for. And so here I am looking at that. And I, I DM'd Ashley. And I said, hey, I, I don't know the story. I don't know what's going on. But I don't know. Maybe maybe being a part of a faith community could be good for you guys. Could be good for Brooke. And they said, yeah, that's a great, a great idea. And so here they, they come to church a couple months ago. My neighbors, they, they live down the street from me. Their kids and my kids go to school together. And then here they come, and, and Brooke starts babysitting my kids every once in a while and stuff. And, you know, I see them, and we went to lunch a few weeks ago and stuff. And then Brooke one day tells me, I want to be baptized. A 15-year-old kid. And again, her answers were so unprompted and totally her. But, I, you know, asked, why, why do you want to be baptized? Because I've made the decision to follow Jesus. Because Jesus has made my life better and maybe better at life. Because she sees the value in faith and trusting Jesus with her life. Because as she's entrusted Jesus with her life, things have changed. And she's experienced God's faithfulness on the other side. Isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that, isn't that more beautiful than just believing in a bunch of stuff? Isn't that so good to see happen in the world, in the next generation. To see how, how these things can come together and God can transform a life. It excites me. It gives me so much joy. And it's my honor to baptize Brooke this morning. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And I'm going to pray for you guys. And we're going to sing a song that you've probably never heard before. And about halfway through, I'm going to get to baptize Brooke. But will you stand with me this morning as we pray? Father God. Father God, thank you so much for being with us in the midst of pivotal circumstances. God, thank you so much for meeting us here today, for taking us through this series, and for growing up and blowing up our faith, God. God, I know there's so many stories in this room of our faith in action and what you've done. I know there's still stories in this room of us dealing with struggles. But God, this morning, I pray that we would just lay all of that at your feet. Would we put our confidence and our trust in you this morning? And would we see the difference that it can make, not just in our lives, but in others' lives as well? Amen. There's just some problems 